In 2020, the Time Person of the Year is President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. Oh, no. Somebody's not going to be happy about that. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yes, From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, AKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP. In Rochester, New York, WRFV. New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. But today, once again, you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler. I host the Nicole Sandler Show based at NicoleSandler.com. And we are counting down the days until (laughs) hopefully everything changes. 40 days until Inauguration Day, 26 days until the Electoral College votes are accepted or not by Congress, 25 days until Election Day in Georgia's two U.S. Senate runoffs that will determine control of the U.S. Senate. And even sooner than that, on Monday, the Electoral College will cast their votes to finalize the election of 2020. Unless the Supreme Court weighs in before then and does something stupid. Have you followed what's going on here? This is frightening. As of Thursday, 106 Republicans in the House of Representatives signed an amicus brief encouraging the Supreme Court to hear arguments in the case, even though all 50 states have certified their results and no evidence of widespread fraud has been uncovered. Now, I'm of the mind that those 106 Republicans are trying to undermine the results of a U.S. presidential election. At the very least, none of them should be seated when Congress is sworn in on January 3rd. And apparently, I'm not alone. This just in. Democratic Congressman Bill Pascrell is calling on Speaker Pelosi to, quote, refuse to seat those Republican members of Congress who signed that amicus brief. Great minds think alike. At the most, I don't know, I got to go back to the interview that I played for you last time I was here and see if this is treasonous behavior, or if not treason, definitely seditious behavior, right? So I wanted to share with you the names of those 106 House Republicans who signed on to the letter, but it's a long list. So I'll just talk really fast. Ready? 
Mike Johnson of Louisiana, Gary Palmer of Alabama, Steve Lisa of Louisiana, Jim Jordan of Ohio, Ralph Abraham of Louisiana, Rick Allen of Georgia, James Baird of Indiana, Jim Banks of Indiana, Jack Burton of Michigan, Andy Biggs of Arizona, Gus Nellerekis of Florida, Dan Bishop of North Carolina, Mike Bost of Illinois, Kevin Brady of Texas, Mo Brooks of Alabama, Ken Buck of Colorado, Ted Budd of North Carolina, Timber Chet of Tennessee, Michael Burgess of Texas, Bradley Burn of Alabama, Ken Calvert of California, Earl Carter of Georgia, Ben Klein of Virginia, Michael Cloud of Texas, Mike Conway of Texas, Rick Crawford of Arkansas, Dan Crenshaw of Texas, Mario Diaz Bellart of Florida, Jeff Duncan of South Carolina, Neil Dunn of Florida, Tom Emmer of Minnesota, Ron Estes of Kansas, Drew Ferguson of Georgia, Chuck Fleischman of Tennessee, Bill Flores of Texas, Jeff Fortenberry of Nebraska, Virginia Fox of North Carolina, Russ Fulcher of Idaho, Matt Gates of Florida, Greg Gianforte of Montana, Bob Gibbs of Ohio, Louis Gomer of Texas, Lance Gooden of Texas, Sam Graves of Missouri, Mark Green of Tennessee, Michael Guest of Mississippi, Andy Harris of Maryland, Vicki Hartzler of Missouri, Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma, Clay Higgins of Louisiana, Trey Hollingsworth of Indiana, Richard Hudson of North Carolina, Bill Heisinger of Michigan, Bill Johnson of Ohio, John Joyce of Pennsylvania, Fred Keller of Pennsylvania, Mike Kelly of Pennsylvania, Trent Kelly of Mississippi, Steve King of Iowa, David Kustoff of Tennessee, Darren LaHood of Illinois, Doug Lamalfa of California, Doug Lamborn of Colorado, Robert Latta of Ohio. <sighs> oh no, you've got to be kidding me. Well, now... House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and 19 other House Republicans who didn't sign on to this amicus brief on Thursday, all of a sudden on Friday, joined in. Now, on Thursday, when McCarthy was left off of the original filing, he wouldn't answer any questions about whether or not he supported the long shot lawsuit, which has been dismissed by legal experts as doomed to fail. He's now the highest ranking Republican in Congress to back the suit, which Donald Trump has called the big one. So this makes a bad situation even worse. All of these 126 House Republicans out of 160 are encouraging the Supreme Court to hear this case, even though there's no merit to it. To reiterate, the lawsuit alleges that Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin skewed the presidential election results and electors selected by voters in those states should not be permitted to cast their votes for Biden. This is unheard of. It's 64 percent of the House Republican caucus. Now, there are a few who didn't join in, most notably Republican Conference Chair Liz Cheney of Wyoming is among the highest profile Republicans who didn't back the suit. Congressman Chip Roy of Texas wrote on Twitter that the case, quote, represents a dangerous violation of federalism and sets a precedent to have one state asking federal courts to police the voting procedures of other states. This is terrifying. It really is, because common sense tells us there's no way the Supreme Court will take this case. There's no merit there. But... 126 House Republicans have signed on to this. And oh, yeah, 18 state attorneys general have joined in as well. Now, all of the states, the four states that Texas, for whatever reason, is butting into um, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin and Georgia, all four of them have issued blistering rebukes of the lawsuit. Pennsylvania officials called it a, quote, seditious abuse of the judicial process. And in another brief, warned the justices that granting Texas's unprecedented request would, quote, do violence to the Constitution and disenfranchise millions of voters. Also on Thursday, Washington, D.C.'s Attorney General Carl Racine filed a separate brief defending those swing states on behalf of the nation's capital and 22 states and territories, saying, no, this, this, this doesn't fly. And this, this latest flurry of action happened after Donald Trump vowed to intervene with the Supreme Court on behalf of the Texas Attorney General's bid to reverse the election outcome. It's just mind-blowing. 
that story alone would be enough to drive a million news cycles, right? But there's so much more going on, so much more unbelievable stuff going on. For instance, the Senate on Friday passed the $741 billion defense authorization bill, sending it to Trump with veto-proof majorities in both chambers of Congress. The House passed it on Thursday by an overwhelming 335 to 78. Yeah, that's veto-proof, all right. So Congress is now daring Trump to make good on his threat to try to veto the legislation. In recent weeks, Trump has escalated his promises to veto the NDAA, which directs funding for the Pentagon and everything from overseas operations to pay and health care for civilian and uniform personnel and more. It's a behemoth of a bill and something needs to be done about it, but they can't function without it. Anyway, the reasons he says he'll veto it, because there's a provision included in the bill that directs the Department of Defense to rename all installations commemorating Confederate figures. He doesn't like that because he believes in honoring war figures who fought against the Union. Hmm. He also wants this bill to include a provision that would repeal an unrelated law that grants tech companies, you know, social media companies and such liability protections against content that users post to those sites. One thing he doesn't realize that if that were to happen, if 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 the liability protection went away, his Twitter account would have been killed years ago. But again, veto-proof majority. The Senate on Friday also passed a one-week continuing resolution by voice vote. The House had passed it on Thursday, so they bought themselves another week, avoiding a potential government shutdown. But still floating out there in the ether somewhere is um, a COVID relief bill. Congress is getting nowhere in negotiations. They seem to be stuck on two issues. Democrats want $160 billion in funds for state and local governments. Republicans want liability protections for businesses and other organizations to protect them against employees or consumers who get COVID due to the lack of precaution taken by the companies. Lovely. Senator Bernie Sanders, who caucuses with the Democrats, teamed up with Republican and one of the more heinous Republicans, as a matter of fact, Josh Hawley of Missouri. They introduced a proposal that would provide a second round of $1,200 checks like the ones that were distributed via the CARES Act that was passed last March. Meanwhile, Christmas is something like 14 days away and millions of Americans are broke, hungry and either close to homeless or already there. Donald Trump is burning down the house before he leaves, with a big assist from Mitch McConnell. Thanks, Kentucky. As screwed up as our presidential election is and Washington, D.C. is, that's nothing compared to the almost 300,000 American lives that have been lost to COVID-19. A new single-day record of COVID deaths in the U.S. were reported on Thursday, 3,110. That broke the previous day's record of 3,102 deaths. There were 229,928 new cases reported on Thursday alone, also a new record. 
And as of Friday morning, 292,954 people have already died in the United States of COVID-19. America just went over 16 million diagnosed cases. You know what that makes us. We're number one, damn it! Yeah, but... An FDA advisory committee has recommended that the agency grant a long-awaited emergency use authorization for the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine. The FDA still has to actually grant the authorization before they start shipping and distributing the vaccines to states. Plus, a CDC committee also needs to recommend the vaccine, and the CDC would need to accept the recommendation before any shots can be administered. That advisory committee meets Friday and should vote over the weekend. The whole process will then likely be repeated soon for the Moderna vaccine. It sounds like they have it pretty much under control. It'll happen fairly soon. But Donald Trump just can't help himself. And on Friday afternoon, he tweeted at FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn to, quote, get the damn D.A.M. vaccines out now in all caps. He reportedly sent a message through the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, to Commissioner Hahn to authorize the Pfizer vaccine today, being Friday, or submit his resignation. I couldn't make this stuff up if I tried. Either way, vaccinations could start within a few days. Stay tuned. All right, you don't need me to tell you this, but Donald Trump gets more despicable with each day leading up to his ouster. Thursday night, the U.S. government put to death Brandon Bernard, a federal prisoner convicted of murder for his part in a gang killing of a couple in 1999. Bernard was the youngest person in the U.S. to receive a death sentence in nearly 70 years for a crime committed when he was an adolescent. And his execution is the ninth to be carried out since Attorney General William Barr restarted federal executions after a 17-year hiatus. The case garnered lots of attention from activists who argued against the execution because Bernard was a teenager at the time of the murder and was not the person who actually shot and killed the victims. Unfortunately, the government proceeded despite high-profile opposition from five of the nine surviving jurors who sentenced Bernard to death, from the prosecutor who defended his death sentence on appeal, from several members of Congress, 23 current and former prosecutors, and even Kim Kardashian West. Just sickening. So Time Magazine on Thursday named the 2020 Person of the Year. Although Donald Trump and others mistakenly think it's some sort of award, the person of the year is someone who affected the news or our lives the most, for better or worse. The announcement, though, came from Bruce Springsteen. Good evening. The events of 2020 have changed us in ways that were unthinkable until this year. A once-in-a-generation health crisis has rocked our lives while also demonstrating the resilience of the human spirit. A rallying cry for justice and equality has rung out around the world. And across the nation, a record number of Americans made their voice heard, making history along the way. For nearly 100 years, time has named the person of the year. In 2020, the time person of the year is President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. The other finalists were Trump, the Movement for Racial Justice, 
and a combination of frontline health workers and Dr. Anthony Fauci, who Time magazine did name Time's Guardian of the Year. Dr. Fauci has, of course, become a folk hero to many Americans. Well, this story just crossed my desktop. A 32-year-old close to Dr. Fauci, the brother of Fauci's daughter's boyfriend, has died of COVID-19. He was a perfectly healthy 32-year-old guy who got COVID, got the cardiac complications, and died within a week. I guess he didn't have access to Donald Trump's designer cocktail like he and his friends had. Happy holidays to you, too. Speaking of holidays, on Thursday night, the first candles were lit on menorahs around the world. Hanukkah has begun. So drink your gin and Hanukkah and smoke your marijuana. A look at Joe Biden's cabinet assembly in progress next. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today, and we have breaking news. Now, I'm coming to you on Friday night, and as I'm putting the show to bed, the news just broke. The headline from the Washington Post reads, Supreme Court dismisses bid led by Texas Attorney General to overturn the presidential election results, blocking Trump's legal path to reverse his loss. Let me share with you a little of the story. And this is rip and read because it just happened and I'm on a deadline. The Supreme Court on Friday dismissed a long shot bid by President Trump and the state of Texas to overturn the results in four states, won by Democrat Joe Biden, blocking the president's legal path to reverse his reelection loss. <clears throat> the court's unsigned order was short. Quote, Texas has not demonstrated a judicial a judicially cognizable interest in the manner in which another state conducts its elections. All other pending motions are dismissed as moot. Sounds like they had a standing problem, which this non-juror realized. Anyway, back to the article. It says, Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas, as they have in the past, 
said they did not believe the court had the authority to simply reject Texas's request. Quote, I would therefore grant the motion to file the bill of complaint, but would not grant other relief. And I express no view on any other issue. I don't know who said that, Alito or Thomas or both. Anyway, it goes on to say Trump, who has appointed three of the court's nine members, has long viewed the Supreme Court as something of an ace in the hole. And he called for the justices to display courage and rescue him in post-election litigation. After Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in September, he said filling the seat was essential because of the possibility of litigation that might otherwise end in a tie. Justice Amy Coney Barrett, sorry, I can't help myself, was confirmed in a party line vote by the Republican controlled Senate to replace Ginsburg. In a case earlier this week, the court turned down a request from Republican congressional candidates to overturn the results in Pennsylvania with a one sentence order. Barrett took part in the case, but neither she nor fellow Trump appointees Neil Gorsuch or Brett Kavanaugh noted their objection. Trump has refused to acknowledge defeat, instead embarking on a noisy campaign to discredit the election. Yeah, we know. He has made unproven charges of corruption and a rigged election in states he lost and unsubstantiated claims of illegal voting, votes switched by computer software and rampant fraud. None have come close to being proven. And Attorney General William Barr said the U.S. attorneys and FBI agents running down specific complaints and information, quote, have not seen fraud on a scale that could have affected a different outcome in the election. I have a smile on my face, and that's a good thing because it's been a rough day. The Washington Post continues, legal efforts by Trump and his allies filed in states he lost, have been stunningly unsuccessful. One minor win compared to more than 50 losses in state and federal courts at both the trial and appellate level. (laughs) It's pretty remarkable. The election results have been certified in each state, and the Electoral College is scheduled to meet Monday. Biden has 306 electoral votes, exactly the number Trump had when he was elected in 2016. But while Trump lost the popular vote then, Biden has a margin of more than 7 million votes. Texas, led by Trump partisan Attorney General Ken Paxton, they tell you he's a Republican as if you didn't know, tried to maneuver around the court losses by filing directly with the Supreme Court. States suing other states are allowed to ask the court to take up the case, although the court sometimes does not grant permission. (laughs) Yeah, Trump tweeted that this was the Big one that everyone has been waiting for. Texas charged that actions by state officials in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan and and Wisconsin violated the Constitution and diluted the impact of Texas voters. Its major complaint was that state officials in courts in those states had changed election procedures to make it easier to vote by mail or other methods. It said that violated the Constitution's direction that, quote, the legislature of each state set voting procedures. So it asked justices to block those states from casting their combined 62 electoral votes for Biden and order the state legislatures, all Republican controlled, to appoint either new electors or none at all. That would require the court to set aside the results in those states, which Biden won by a combined 300,000 votes. 
So Trump asked to intervene in the suit just yesterday, right? And 17 attorneys general from states where Trump won joined in, even when their own states had voting procedures altered by state officials or courts. A majority of House Republicans then also signed on and urged the Supreme Court to take the case. We talked about that. 126 at last count. The the targeted states responded in blistering briefs with Attorney General, with Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro, calling the Texas suit a, quote, seditious abuse of the judicial process. Wisconsin's Attorney General Joshua Call, a Democrat, said agreeing to the Texas request would thrust the court into the political sphere in a way never imagined. He said if Texas's theory of injury were accepted, it would be too easy to reframe virtually any election or voting rights dispute as implicating injuries to a state and thereby invoke this court's original jurisdiction. New York or California could sue Texas or Alabama in this court over their felon disenfranchisement policies. Garden variety election disputes would soon come to the court in droves. The state said Texas's claims were hypocritical and cynical, although Texas said in a filing that it does not ask this court to reelect President Trump. The suit does not ask the court to discount the votes in any state Trump won where state officials and courts altered voting procedures because of the coronavirus pandemic. Among those states are Texas itself, where the governor made those changes. Amazing. Uh, So it's over. Uh, Although, let's see if Donald Trump has tweeted, because again, the news just broke moments ago, and, and he has not tweeted in the in the ensuing moments since it should be interesting then again i don't think donald trump gives up that easily and he's crazy enough to do something stupid and his sycophantic followers the cult of trump members are also crazy and they're armed so maybe it's a good thing that most of us are staying in these days i don't think this is a good weekend to be out and about because they scare me So please be safe. All right. Be vigilant. Watch out because who knows what they're going to do now. All right. We'll take a quick break and come back on the other side and find out what progressives think about the cabinet that Joe Biden is assembling. Because, yes, they're going to take over January 20th. Yeah. Uh, Sorry. Uh, I'm I'm a little excited. Uh, This is good news. So we're going to talk to Jeff Hauser of the Revolving Door Project next and check in on the cabinet building. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks.
Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today. Thanks to Donald Trump's refusal to admit he lost the election, the Biden-Harris transition team wasn't exactly able to jump right in, outright out of the gate. But they have been methodically assembling their cabinet. I'm a progressive, and I'm not a journalist like Brad is. I'm a talk show host, so I have no issues with getting behind a candidate. And telling you about it, I was a Bernie Sanders supporter. So I want progressives to have a role, a big role, in this administration. Today's guest comes from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, too. Jeff Hauser, your name has been popping up a lot lately. And I first saw it in Politico a few days ago, where they called you, what, the thorn in Joe Biden's transition team's side? Is that how you consider yourself? No, um, we are a good government group. We are an unabashedly progressive good government group, and we focus on the executive branch. We focus in particular on appointments, on personnel as policy, which is a Reagan era expression that got repurposed by Elizabeth Warren in the last decade to argue for non-Wall Street appointments across the executive branch. So we care a lot about who gets appointed. We also care about making sure that people who get appointed can accomplish their goals. And so we want to rebuild and re-empower the civil servants. We think that people like Anthony Fauci and the people who work so hard at the Postal Service, we think those are real heroes. And we think like Alex Azar, who's the former pharma lobbyist who now runs Health and Human Services, people like that are bad. And it's terrible. Part of the reason we've had such a terrible COVID-19 response in this country is we've had lobbyists telling people like Anthony Fauci what to do. And maybe it should be the other way around. Right. It it absolutely not. Maybe it should be. So from the moment um, Biden, well, even before Biden was elected, from the moment James Clyburn um, put his finger on the scale in South Carolina and caused everyone to drop out of the race right before Super Tuesday, we saw the writing on the wall. Okay, it's once again, it's the centrist part, the the establishment Democrats who want to make sure they have power in this upcoming election. And I really think if they hadn't all dropped out of the race right before Super Tuesday, things would be different today. Um, uh, And I don't I I, I make no uh, pretense to say I know what would have happened. I said earlier in the program, I do think that if Bernie Sanders was on the ticket in 2016, that he would have won. Um, I don't know about 2020 because things have gotten so crazy in the last four years, thanks to Trump. So I don't know. I do know. Look, I live in Florida where the the socialism nonsense um, really, I think, had an impact in Miami-Dade County, which is what flipped the state. Um, I think words matter. And it's because of that, I think it's important that the Democratic Party embrace the progressive side. And so where we can exercise influences when it comes to the, uh, the the cabinet picks. Um, and some people, you know, right off the bat when, you know, the first names were floated. And of course, the first big objection, at least in my book, was Tanira Tandon. And I had a massive reaction to that. And all of a sudden you hear, oh, there they go again. Well, you know what? This is not about us. This is about the American people. And my problem with Nira Tandon is she is publicly, consistently and loudly uh, lobbied for 
quote, entitlement cuts, putting Social Security and Medicare on the table so that we, the poor people who depend on those benefits, um, are paying the dues along with what the billionaires who might have their taxes cut or taxes increased. Um, I think it's important they listen to us. And, And that's what you at the Revolving Door Project are all about um, trying to not only influence who might get picked, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you know maybe explaining why the picks that you're proposing would be better. Right. I mean, there are three things that I think the executive branch and frankly the federal government is going to be doing in the next two years. One of them is enforcing laws that are already on the books. And so that means if you're discriminating in hiring and you're violating civil rights laws, we need that to be enforced. If you're making uh, workplace conditions incredibly unsafe for anyone from meat packers to construction workers, that need, we need our occupational safety laws to be enforced. Obviously, there's a whole swath of environmental laws. We need them enforced. Oh, yeah. So there's law enforcement. And we need people in law enforcement positions, civil or criminal, who think that powerful people are the people we should hold to the highest standards, not the lowest standards, which is a way too frequently been the standard in American politics, where we go hard on poor people accused of a crime and we let rich people get away with a slap on the wrist if that. So there's enforcement. The second is regulatory, which is a different type of enforcement, but that is Generally speaking, we have a Clean Water Act, we have a Clean Air Act. How do we make those broad precepts into reality? What is the current science telling us? What sort of rules should we write down the road? We need people who are going to do that energetically. And then finally, we are going to have budgets passed in one form or another. They're going to be spending bills telling the government what to spend. I don't think we're going to see much legislation beyond those beyond spending bills. So the key aspect of what happens in Congress is going to be done in conjunction with Office of Management and Budget and National Economic Council of the President. They're going to be hammering out these spending deals. There might be a short-term spending deal uh, cut now. Uh, I hope there's one that has a few conditions to limit what uh, Trump does to destroy the federal government on the way out because he's trying to do a lot right now that we should be very alarmed about. But then in the next four years, I mean, up and until Democrats get a working control in the Senate, which might not just mean 50 votes, it might mean more yeah. than 50 yeah, people please. aligned with the Democratic Party because, you know, some of the people aligned with the Democratic Party are kind of only loosely aligned. Uh, in that setting, we need people around Biden who are comfortable with the fact that we need deficit spending right now to get people back to work and to heal the like tremendous wounds that have been um, issued upon our state and local governments, upon communities with hunger going up, with homelessness going up, with you know enormous pain out there. We're going to need good spending bills. And as I said, we need uh, law enforcement against the rich, against the powerful, against corporate America, and we need uh, regulations. So so with that in mind, let's let's start with what, you know, people that Biden has announced already. And interesting, though, the the, um, revolving door project 
for whom you work, is a division of the uh, Center for Economic and Policy Research, which I know of because I'm a fan of Dean Baker's. I am not an economist or I'm an old disc jockey. I'm a radio person. Uh, The thing I know about money is how to spend it. I'm really good at that. But a few economists have grabbed my interest. Dean Baker is one. Stephanie Kelton is one. Joseph Stiglitz is a third. And, And after that, my eyes roll back in my head. I would have loved to seen one of them um, be uh, tapped for one of these positions. But instead, um, Biden named Janet Yellen as Treasury Secretary. So Janet Yellen, though, is we could have done worse. She's okay. Yes. Yes. I mean, the standard of Treasury secretaries, I, I spent a little bit of time trying to refresh my memory. And like, had I forgotten someone really good? And even like FDR's Treasury Secretaries kind of came from Wall Street. Uh, there are not a lot of uh, Treasury Secretaries, if any, who have a background similar to that of Janet Yellen. Janet Yellen became a labor economist in the 1970s. That is when she decided and she was an elite law, uh, economic student at Yale, studied under uh uh, this guy, James Tobin, who's won a Nobel Prize, an eminent guy, and he's like one of her star pupils of all time. She chose to go into studying how labor markets work, the effects of unemployment. Those were concerns. This was amidst the 1970s when the economic profession was moving far to the right. People like Milton Friedman were dominant. Modern libertarian instincts, the Reagan revolution, the seeds were planted in the 1970s and Yellen went in the other direction. Yellen has spent an entire career viewing herself as a progressive economist following the facts. That does not mean I want to defend every statement or every decision that Janet Yellen's made. She's had a long, distinguished career. All of us, including I'm sure myself, make mistakes along the way. She's not perfect, but compared to her predecessors under Bill Clinton, Mm. I'm thinking about Lloyd Benson, a very conservative uh, Texas uh, Democrat of the old school back before all those white Texas Democrats became Republicans. I think about Larry Summers. I think about Tim Geithner under Barack Obama and Jack Lew. Compared to people like that and Michael Blumenthal under Jimmy Carter, the Democratic Treasury secretaries, while I've been alive, have all been terrible. And Jenny Yellen is a smart person trying to do the right thing with good progressive instincts. And so, yeah, by the standard of Democratic Treasury secretaries, she is not perfect, but she is really good. So, Jeff Hauser, what about Neera Tandon? So, I mean, Neera Tandon has said uh, some terrible stuff online, and I'm quoted in a Washington Post article this weekend about how Neera Tandon has encouraged contributions from some very terrible and worrisome people, institutions, and foreign countries in the case of the United Arab Emirates, which is a country, you know, helping the Saudi Arabia pursue uh, genocide in Yemen. So there's definitely a case against Neera Tandon to be made, um, and I'm not opposed to it being made. I will say that the person that we thought was the top contender against her for Office of Management and Budget was Bruce Reed. Bruce Reed never thought of himself and does not think of himself as a progressive, unlike Tandon. We, we may not consider Tandon a progressive, but she thinks of herself as one. Uh, Bruce Reed helped run the Democratic Leadership Council, which was literally invented to go to war with progressives to reduce the impact and influence on the Democratic Party of labor unions and the civil rights movement. That is what the Democratic Leadership Council was uh, created to do. He helped build it from the outset. He helped run it 
actually into the ground, which I guess is uh, the best thing Bruce Reed's ever done in public policy, may have been helping mismanage the Democratic Leadership Council out of existence. But that is like a, it is important to compare people to what their direct competitors were. There was also this guy, Jeffrey Zients, who is a vulture capitalist, who was also in the mix for uh, Office of Management and Budget. So, I mean, I, I'm not trying in any way to be a, a, a tandem defender here, but I want to offer some context, um, which may not be the most encouraging context, but I do think is relevant. So I shouldn't be so freaked out about Neera Tandon. I mean, the, uh, I look at who Trump put in there, you know, and uh, we lived through that. But I just worry that somebody who, say, you know, Bernie Sanders winds up being either ranking member or chair of the budget committee, and there's Neera Tandon, who they're not exactly uh, friends, um, and she hasn't exactly been cordial to him. Um, no. I worry about where that could lead. But, you know, honestly, I actually I have this weird view whereby excessively likable, amiable, getting along people uh-huh. are a big problem in Democratic Party politics. Um, we actually have run into this in uh, when we were critical of Jeffrey Zients and also this guy, Brian Deese. Yeah. That the people who everyone like because they treat people well in meetings those people are very hard to push back on when they do the wrong thing because people give them the benefit of the doubt. And I think the benefit of the doubt uh, for Tandon at OMB with Bernie Sanders is going to be less. And so Bernie Sanders is going uh, maybe non-existent. And so that is actually like can work out relatively well because that means he can hold her feet to the fire and not have any awkward friendship to get in the way. I mean, I think a lot of people think Bernie was not necessarily the most effective opponent of Joe Biden mm-hmm. in the primary because they actually like each other. <laughs> right. And like, that's obviously to Biden's credit, right? Being good at politics is often about making friends across uh, alliances. And the fact that Joe Biden got Bernie Sanders to not be very critical is obviously a political skill that helped him win the nomination, but it is a thing. And so I, I think that Tandon, who wants to portray herself as a progressive and certainly will not want to be at war with uh, the leading Democrat on the budget committee, there's actually something that we have to work with with respect to somebody like that that is different than with a Bruce Reed, whose entire identity is about being at war with progressives. I mean, the, the other thing to just note about Tandon is I spent time when I was preparing for a potential Clinton administration in 2016, and I felt gross about it, but I read a lot of the WikiLeaks emails. Mm. And oddly, Tandon was like the lefty in Clinton. Really? World. Wow. Okay. Um, well, that's she, good to I mean, know. That also points out some people we should be worried about, like Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor. His views, his instincts on domestic policy were not good. He has claimed to have changed, but she was arguing for a financial transactions tax in 2016. That's pretty good. That's a very much a, not only a uh, idea that Dean Baker is associated with, uh, James Tobin, who's Janet Yellen's mentor, mm-hmm. he invented it. It was called the Tobin tax. So, I mean, there's some glimmers of hope, okay. um, even if followers of Neera Tandon's Twitter account may not, <laughs> may for very understandable reasons, uh, not be as uh, optimistic as I am. I hear you. All right. We, we are hearing from Jeff Hauser. He is the co-founder and director of the Revolving Door Project. .org is where you can find it. Um, let's talk about one one position that has taken a much higher profile during the Trump years has been that of director of Homeland Security. 
Uh, Biden named Alejandro Mayorkas. What do we think about him? I've heard mostly pretty good things about him. Now, this is a tough position because the Department of Homeland Security, there's not like a uh, great period of time in which you can hearken back to it. Like, oh, if we could only make the Department of Homeland Security uh, work like when it worked really well, that that would not exist. (laughs) No. Um, and so getting somebody with expertise there, which may or may, or may not be the best idea, but is like a conventional and Biden is a conventional figure. It's a conventional way of looking at a job search. Mayorkas is as good as you could get. Like he worked at uh, USCIS, which is the citizenship service. And his job was to try to smooth the way for people to become American citizens, which is one of the best aspects of the Department of Homeland Security, which combines a bunch of different, uh, often dystopic uh, uh, powers. So I think people are relatively encouraged. That isn't to say he can't be pushed or wouldn't need to be pushed, because I think one clear lesson of immigration under Obama is that advocates always need to push hard, particularly on the Department of Homeland Security. Um, so I think you know advocates are going to have to be ready to fight on behalf of immigrants' rights. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think Mayorkas was a reasonably good choice. Good. Now, you know, another position that has... Uh, I think increased and it it was always important. It's a cabinet level position. It's going to be important. But in the age of covid health and human services is really important. And today, last night or today, uh, Joe Biden announced Javier Becerra, who is the attorney general of the state of California, who served 24 years in Congress from California before he seated Kamala Harris as attorney general of California. He's a progressive And I think he's a great choice, although there were some holding out for him to be named attorney general. How do you think he'll do Javier Becerra as uh, secretary of health and human services? So this is another like encouraging situation. And Mm. and I think more so than like the Tandon versus Bruce Reed, which I think is clearly better. But I understand the critiques. Becerra is affirmatively good. I mean, the only negative stuff I've heard about Becerra relates to criminal justice issues, which are clearly important. Mm -hmm. But in that case, I'd rather him be at HHS (laughs) than uh, at uh, attorney general. Um, And outside of those concerns, he has been a leader on health care issues. He was on the relevant ways and means subcommittee. He supported Medicare for all. As attorney general, he has been an innovator in trying to rein in the behavior of private equity owned hospital chains and the like. He is trying to fight for lower costs and reducing the sort of extractive profits that the worst corporate financiers uh, take out of the healthcare system. They don't take it because of any innovation or quality of service. They just figure out new tricks and to exploit. And Becerra has been fighting against that while also being the lead uh, in fighting against the Trump administration's att- attacks on Obamacare. So this is somebody who's been uh, committed to fighting in the here and the now on the nitty gritty of the details of our messed up healthcare system. Mm. And he's somebody who's been committed for decades to Medicare for all. So he has both a, a big picture set of principles and values that he is working toward in the long run. And he has the willingness to get into the details and make things less bad in the short run. And that's a really good combination. And people have to remember Gina Raimondo, who is one of the worst vulture capitalist Democrats in the country, 
she was set as of Wednesday of last week to become Health and Human Services wow. Secretary. And a whole bunch of us on the left uh, said this would be uh, a civil war. Uh, I said, the only thing I can think of nice to say about Gina Raimondo is that she's not Rahm Emanuel. Um, <laughs> and, you know, a bunch of other people who are more important than me echoed that sort mm-hmm. of critique. And now, like, Gina Raimondo is not HHS and we have Javier Becerra. It's That's like a good. sign that activism works. That's awesome. Speaking of Rahm, though I hate to, he is rumored to be in the mix for transportation secretary as is L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti and a couple of others. Any idea what's happening there? I mean, so my understanding is that Rom is not very real, even though Rom's interest is very real. But you have the NAACP is dead set opposed to a big job for Rahm Emanuel. You have a lot of groups that matter a lot uh, more than my own and should matter much more than my own that are dead set against Rom. And I think Rom just wants to be talked about, thought about. He just is he's looking for relevance and hopefully he will be denied it. I'm relatively optimistic. I think if I prove overly optimistic, I think this becomes a war. I, I don't think progressives can acquiesce to a Rom uh, at transportation. Rom must be. Rom must not take on another, <laughs> any other jobs. I don't care if dog catcher is important in Chicago. <laughs> we should oppose him for dog catcher. Uh, on down the line, Garcetti. I've heard more mixed things about. I don't have like a strong take. I don't know that he definitely. I don't think would be a progressive win. You're right. Whether or not he's a progressive loss, we have not had a chance to really dig in. And I don't know if you've heard from Californians. Uh, more familiar with his work. Not not really. No, uh, there, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of love for him. I don't think he'd be like, a, oh, great. We have Eric Garcetti. I don't think there's anyone that's a shoe in there. More important, though, I, I think the the biggie still hanging out there is um, is a, a, a DOJ is attorney general. Um, Becerra is out now. I know there's a big push for uh, an African-American. I want to talk, though, about someone who's been floated a lot, and that's Sally Yates. Now, people who watch MSNBC think Sally Yates is the bee's knees. They think she's great. As I pointed out, MSNBC is the home for the never-Trumper. I think they want to be the new home for centrist Democrats and never-Trumpers. Sally Yates, you tell us, is not the progressive that they paint her to be. Tell us about Sally Yates. Sally Yates uh, spent a very long time at the Department of Justice, which is not in and of itself a bad thing, even though we do think the Department of Justice has developed an institutional feel, a deference to rich people, uh, a preference for prosecuting the poor and doing very little about the rich. Um, she, in particular, was sort of lacking mercy um, she was overseeing the pardon process, clemency, uh, under Barack Obama. And the lawyer who was assigned to work under her on this front to try to push to create a system so that we could have people, on, I mean, uh, non-threatening people who are in jail for like drug crimes and the like, to get some of those people out who are in on excessively long sentences or maybe shouldn't have had sentences at all, um, 
to try to get those people some freedom. And that person sent an angry resignation letter to Sally Yates talking about how Sally Yates had not set her up to be able to accomplish her important mission of clemency for people who deserved it. That's very discouraging. Um, even more, I think, discouraging to your like MSNBC viewer of the line along the lines you were describing mm-hmm. should be the fact that she went to a very right wing big law firm. I mean, there aren't really left wing big law law firms, but there are like more Democratic Party associated big law firms and slightly greater moral character big law law firms than King and Spalding. Uh, so she went to King and Spalding where she became partners with this guy, Bobby Birchfield. Bobby Birchfield holds a job title that I think your listeners probably don't think exists or is an oxymoron. He is the Trump Organization's ethics lawyer. So he is the guy who says that everything the Trump Organization has been doing to profit under uh, while Trump is president is okay. This is the kosher stuff. This is the acceptable behavior. He has signed off on all of it. He also represented the Trump uh, campaign in North Carolina in a series of litigation efforts. And what do Trump and the Republican Party do in the state of North Carolina? They try to limit the rights of people to vote, especially the rights of people of color. I mean, there are many law firms that are not among the top three law firms providing lawyers (laughs) to the Trump campaign. In fact, only three law firms have that honor. Sally Yates chose one of those three law firms. She had a lot of career options. This is somebody who was a famous elite lawyer. She could have gone to a plaintiff side law firm. Mm-hmm. She could have gone to a civil rights law firm. She could have gone to a labor law firm. She could have become an MSNBC host and probably <laughs> made hundreds of thousands right. of dollars and given some speech to fat cats and written a book and lectured at some universities and lived quite comfortably, uh, much, you know, well into the 1% and retained dignity. And that is not what she's done. Instead, when she's not, you know, a partner to somebody this noxious, she provides advice to corporate clients on how to avoid the DOJ coming down hard on you. That is literally the work that her department at King and Spalding provides insider advice on how to get away with stuff when being investigated by the Department of Justice. Wow. You don't need people like her running the Department of Justice. No, no. And I'm glad you're sounding this warning because so many of us don't know that because that's not what MSNBC tells the good progressives. So other names that I'm hearing floated for AG are former senator from Alabama, Doug Jones, former director of Homeland Security, Jay Johnston, and the chair of the DNC, Tom Perez. Tell me there's somebody else out there. I mean, I'd like to think that they will be considering two people who I think have been conspicuous from their absence from some of the publicly made lists. One is the attorney general of the state of New York, Letitia oh, James. She's great. Yeah. Um, she is somebody who's fearless, mm-hmm. has a public service background, um, is not a sellout, has integrity. She'd be great. And then there's Sherilyn Eiffel, who is oh, uh, oh, yes. the ACP oh, my God. Legal Defense Fund. And I think the idea that somebody could spend their career um, in civil rights and in academia like Sherilyn Eiffel and like come to the Department of Justice, that would be like that's the type of country I want to live in is where yeah. somebody with that kind of background can get the big job. One of her predecessors is Thurgood Marshall. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is like the way we should be returning the Democratic Party is looking to people like 
LBJ made appointments from the NAACP, from like the steel workers. I mean, he was making appointments from the types of places where you would expect to find good progressives. And so I'd like to see people like that involved right now. I, I mean, of the people I'm hearing named, it's just not like a, it's not a super encouraging list. I know some people are high on Doug Jones and I, I hope to dig in more. I don't have a full sense. I mean, I know the top lines of his resume sound pretty good, mm. but I'm not sure how deep in. And the, the final thing I would just say is that the Department of Justice, it matters on antitrust. It matters on tax law enforcement. It matters on environmental enforcement. It matters on consumer protection. It is an economically significant job above and beyond its more obvious uh, crime and civil rights uh, responsibility. Definitely. Well, I love the idea of Cheryl and Eiffel. Oh, my God. I'm that, Yes. Let's tweet that one out. Jeff Hauser, thank you so much for a really enlightening conversation. And with that, we come to the end of another edition of the broadcast. For Brad Friedman and Desi Doyen, I'm Nicole Sandler wishing all of us good luck, world. <laughs>